We're going to be in Esther today in our unusable series, again, a, our summer series, looking at different characters throughout the scripture who, uh, for whatever the reason, either, either the world or the religious would deem unusable. And today we find ourselves looking at the story of Esther. Before we get there, I want to uh, start with the news, our favorite thing. In our world, in our news feeds, in our social media feeds, it is not uncommon to come across people, heck, we just, we just heard it talked about in this video, facing troubling circumstances, facing some of the worst possible circumstances. For God's people, for thousands of years, suffering has been a common part of our existence over time. Coming to God, coming to Jesus does not necessarily make life easier. It oftentimes makes it harder. Jesus compares following him to picking up a cross. There's nothing comfortable about that. And despite the lies of really people who I think are con artists, honestly, but these tele-evangelist prosperity preachers who say, you know, sow $1,000 into my jet or my mansion and God will send you favor. That is a bunch of... Dewey, it's a word that came to mind, it's VBS day, so we're going to, we're censoring, all right? The truth is that oftentimes God-fearing people endure trial and tribulation as Jesus did, as his disciples did, as the church has done. And our story today takes place during a time in which the Jews are facing particularly perilous times. The Jews are facing an order from the king to wipe them out. And their fate fell into the hands of an orphaned Jewish woman. Now, if you were in Susa, the capital of Persia, in the 5th century, and you wanted to exert your will on society, on the decision-making of the day, being any of those three things, any one of those three things would have been an obstacle. And today, the focus, Esther, happens to be all three. Pray with me. God, I thank you for all the things going on. And Lord, for what will very well be semi-controlled chaos over the coming week, Lord, we pray that in these moments that you would push aside distractions. We pray that you would speak to hearts. We pray that you would bring challenge and conviction. And God, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this is how we're going to do things today. I'm going to go through the story of Esther because there's some people who perhaps never heard it or maybe you did and it's been a while. So we're going to go through the story fairly quickly, read some passages, some high points from the book of Esther. Then we're going to pivot. And really the first point is going to be about what is something we glean about God from this narrative, from this story. And then finally, we're going to end with what is something we can kind of learn about ourselves. So the story, looking at God, reflect what we learn about God, and then what, something we perhaps learn about ourselves. That's the direction we're going on. And so we're going to begin with the plot of the story. I'm going to start with the main characters. There are four named, main named characters in the book of Esther. And the first one I'm going to say is Esther. Already talked about her. She is the main character. She is the one who ends up uh, 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 saving her people. She is an orphaned Jewish woman. Next, her cousin Mordecai. 
also a good guy, you could say. He's the cousin of Esther who adopted her and raised her as his own daughter when her parents died. His great-grandpa was brought out of Jerusalem and exiled during that time 100 years past. Third, Haman. He is an enemy of God in this account. He was an evil man in a position of power in Persia who sought to use that power for his own selfish gain and was willing to do whatever to whomever to make that the case. And then fourth and finally, Xerxes. Now you're going to see Ahasuerus is how it is. You read it in some of your Bibles. We know this character popularly today and in the history books as Xerxes. Now Hollywood has actually portrayed him in films. This is a film in which Xerxes, he was the Persian king who actually tried to attack Greece and, and 300 Spartans stood at the, 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 the strait in Thermopylae. Some of you may be familiar with that story. I don't know where they got this look from, okay? It's a little bit creepy. We actually do have a, a, a photo of the actual Xerxes. They, Hollywood makes quite a leap there, but that's, that's Xerxes. Now let's get into the story. Verse 1, Esther chapter 1. It says, these events took place during the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Kush. In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, the army of Persia and Media, the nobles and the officials from the provinces. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. I want to make sure we get a glimpse for a moment of where we are in history. We're talking about the 5th century. You got a little bit of a timeline here. A hundred years prior to the Esther story, the people had been exiled. If you see, 500, about 30 or so years before Esther, the temple had been completed. A little bit after this, a couple decades after this, you will see the exiles come with Ezra. And so that 486 to 465, the reign of Xerxes, that's where we find ourselves, roughly 500 years before Jesus. Now, i got a map we're going to put up here. This was the Persian reign. And so for those of you, you had Israel, who would, the north would be conquered by Assyria, and then the south would be conquered by Babylon, and then Persia would come in. And of course, eventually after Persia, we would get the Greeks and then the Romans. That's our history. Now, what would happen in the early chapters of Esther is that the king had a spat with his wife. She didn't go to him when he summoned her, and so he booted her. And now he's looking for a new wife. And so they go about this uh, summoning young, beautiful women in order to more or less figure out who is going to be his next wife. Esther wins. Esther is looked upon favorably. Not only was she a, uh, an orphan Jewish woman, she was beautiful. And after some time, she was inevitably made queen. Now, back to the text, chapter 2. We've got one more passage we're going to read through. Verse 19. It says, When the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai sitting at the king's gate, Esther still did not reveal her family background or her ethnicity as Mordecai, her cousin, had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's order. She always had while he raised her. And during those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate the king. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf... 
When the report was investigated and verified, they were hanged in the gallows. The event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. So now we have these two Jews who are foreigners in a foreign land in a favorable position with the king of Persia. Chapter 3, last five verses. After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman. So now Haman comes into the story. This is the bad guy. Son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, descendants of Canaan. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. And the entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. Now, one of the things about the Jewish people over the course of history is they drove everyone nuts. They, on many, many occasions, and the Greeks had to deal with this, and the Romans had to deal with this, and the Persians had to deal with this, and the Babylonians had to deal with this. We have accounts of them doing their own thing. And when, when fill-in-the-blank empire says, we're going to do this, they would say, no, sorry. And that ended up with a lot of friction and a lot of tension and a lot of hostility. This is no different. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? And when they had warned him day after day, he still would not listen. They told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. What do we know? We know that Esther is queen. We know that Mordecai is favored by the king for saving his life. We know that Haman hates Mordecai and finds out he's a Jew. And so he ends up convincing the king to an order that all Jews would be slaughtered. The king doesn't know Mordecai is a Jew or that Esther is a Jew. And so Mordecai ends up building a giant gallows to hang Haman. And Mordecai, with this order, I'm sorry, Haman builds the gallows to kill Mordecai. I'm getting confused with the names, I'm sorry. And so Mordecai goes to Esther and says, you got to talk to the king. Our people are at risk here. They did a roll of the dice, and in 12 months, they gave them 12, 12 months, people would be slaughtered. you got to talk to the king. And so Esther, at a risk to her life, which we'll talk about a little bit more later, she ends up going to the king and summoning her courage, and the king sides with her. Haman is hung on the very gallows he wanted to use to kill Mordecai. And the people end up rescued. That's the Reader's Digest version. That was fast. You can read the 10 chapters on your own later. But I put all that out there in order to launch into what are really our main two points, reflections today. Before we get there, in all of this, you've probably noticed a gaping absence did you hear when I said four main named characters? Named characters. Because there's one unnamed main character in the book of Esther, and that's God. Where is he? One of the peculiar things about the book of Esther is that God is not mentioned once. It is actually part of the design of this book that while God is mentioned nowhere, he is nonetheless seen everywhere. This is an example of seeing God in his fingerprints. This is our first point. That in reading Esther, we see that God moves even when he is not mentioned. 
Now, growing up, I always loved crime shows. We watched Forensic Files or some, some true crime stuff. We watched um, in cops growing up. I grew up in a law enforcement family, and so dad was a cop, mom was a dispatcher, stepdad was a cop, uncle uh, worked for the DA after he was a sheriff. And then you start getting these shows like CSI and stuff would come out and, and quickly learned there's certain shows you just can't watch with actual cops, okay? Because you sit and you watch something like CSI and they're just, that's not real. No police station could ever afford that. He would have been fired. Um, I know for a fact too that there are some people in this room that I couldn't watch a submarine movie with. But if you watch crime shows, at some point, at some point they reveal, when they're doing the, the scene, the fingerprints left behind. Pointing not just to where someone has been, but perhaps even what they've been up to as well. This is the book of Esther. Not just up to the point of the Jews being in danger, but all the way through in the way God delivers them. And we're tempted to see this and think, perhaps over and over, what a coincidence. But I would argue there are no coincidences. Mark Dever actually points out a list of what he calls just so happens in the book of Esther. And I just, I stole a little less than half from him. There are so many. Esther just so happens to be Jewish and beautiful and favored by the king. Mordecai just so happens to overhear a plot against the king's life. And so a report of this, of him saving the king, just so happens to be recorded in the king's chronicles. Haman just so happens to notice Mordecai is not bowing down and to end up finding out he is a Jew. When Haman plots his revenge on the Jews, he casts a dice, and it just so happens to tell him to wait almost a year. Esther happens to get the king's approval to speak to him, and just so happens to push it off a day. Her delay just so happens to send, uh, in that delay, Haman out by Mordecai one more time, which just so happens to lead to his friends encouraging him to build up the gallows to kill Mordecai. The king just so happens to not be able to sleep, and he just so happens to have Mordecai's life-saving deed read to him so that it's fresh in his mind, which just so happens to lead him to wanting to reward Mordecai when Haman wanted him dead. It goes on and on and on. It's less than half. We don't see God's name in the story, but we see his justice and the pride and selfishness of Haman being undercut and punished. We don't see God's mention, but we see his faithfulness and the rescue of his people in a foreign land. There, these aren't coincidences. This story is all about God being in the details. The story is all about God getting things done. And remember, church, these people are in a foreign land with people who didn't really like them, who would not have been all that hospi hospitable or welcoming to them. They, as a people, had never really been looked at fondly by outsiders, especially an empire or a ruler, no doubt hated or despised by some. But though the people were far from their homeland, surrounded by a different people with different values, worshiping false gods, this account is a reminder that God hadn't gone anywhere. And of course, God doesn't do coincidences. Now this statement, God doesn't do coincidences, is something that as you read the Bible is pretty seared, pretty saturated on the consciousness of the Old Testament and beyond. Just a few scriptures 
that are pretty explicit. Proverbs 19, many plans are in a person's heart, but the Lord's decree will prevail. Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Even Joseph, after suffering pretty terribly, after being betrayed by his brothers, after being sold into slavery, after being imprisoned, looking back on all that had been done, the terrible things done to him, utters to his brothers at the end of Genesis, you planned evil against me, God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. As I was thinking through this week, this idea of, of, of seeing God in his fingerprints, one of the challenges I wrestled through with myself was, why don't we do that all that much today? And I do believe that we, and myself included, are a people that struggle to rest, to stop, and to reflect. Do we not? That we are so busy, so consumed, so stressed about whatever is coming next, we have an incompetency when it comes to stopping, resting, and reflecting. We have such a fear of empty moments. Can't go to the bathroom without pulling out a screen. Can't wait in line without pulling out a screen. For thousands of years, those moments when you laid down your head after a long day's work, you had a few moments with God peacefully to reflect and to talk before falling asleep are now for many of us filled with a screen because we can't have empty moments before we fall asleep. Perhaps we would be better served from time to time at the end of the day with a friend or a spouse to ask the question, where have you seen God's fingerprints on your day? Where was he unmentioned and yet nonetheless moving? To parents in the room, as I thought about this for my kids, it's in these kind of reflections. These kinds of things are what take Christianity for a child and move it from being this kind of religion you do over there to, to the very thing through which you interpret and see the world. Asking reflective questions about God in their everyday life. It's not just some belief, but an actual worldview. We see God in his fingerprints. And if we're honest, sometimes that in the midst of difficult or uncomfortable situation, perhaps a perilous or dangerous one, even situation you would describe as suffering or trial, we find ourselves in situations even regularly asking God, why or why me? Esther may have been queen, but when her cousin asked her to go to the king, this was a dangerous situation. To go to the king unsummoned was a capital offense punishable by death. And some would say, yo, but she's the queen. Does she really have anything to be afraid of? One, he got rid of the last queen, no problem. Didn't seem to have very many issues with that. Two, he hadn't seen Esther in weeks, and this king definitely was not going to bed every night by himself. Not exactly what you call an emotional attachment to Esther. She was afraid. I feel for that. And so in this encounter that she has with Mordecai, her cousin, he's trying to convince her to go and to ask the king on the behalf of the Jews. Verse 14 of chapter four, we see this. More says Mordecai, speaking to Esther, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. One, I love that. Mordecai knows that God doesn't need Esther to get it done that God's going to get it done. 
And sometimes we kind of build ourselves up a little too, a little too high for ourselves. Heads get a little too big. It's like, God, I'm here. You're welcome. Like, no, that's, that's, that's not how it works. Some of us treat our money that way. It's not going to get done unless I, it's like, God doesn't need your money. But God wants people to participate in the mission that he's carrying out in the world. We do this in all sorts of ways. Mordecai knew God's purposes will be done. But what does Mordecai say? But you and your fam father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? And this is, this is the line we're going to zero in on. Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Church, perhaps you were born. Perhaps you were brought to where you are. Perhaps you are in the position you're in. Perhaps you were surrounded by the people you're surrounded by for such a time as this. I was thinking about motivations this week. The mindset that we go into our world and the decisions that we make. And something they keep percolating. With, with Esther, she had to make a very uncomfortable, uh, uncomfortable decision. And I thought this week, just about how comfortable we are. Follow me for a moment. It may seem like a tangent. I'm going to bring it back. Think about how much time and energy and money is spent on our comfort. How much time and energy and money is spent on our vanity. How much time and energy and money is spent preserving a particular temperature in our homes. Heat wave what? How much time... And energy and money is spent on what entertains us, on the food we eat. Often, not the food we need, but the food we want, right? Comfort food. We are a comfort-obsessed culture. Comfort is often one of our biggest drivers. When we say yes or no to a new experience, one of the things motivating us isn't, what kinds of people am I going to meet? Isn't, is this really good for me? It's, is that, that going to be too uncomfortable for me? And one of our issues as a church in the West, in America, as a people obsessed and whose lives are saturated with comfort is that the life of a Christian is actually an uncomfortable one. Now bringing it back, Esther would go before the king, king risking her life to save her people. 500 years later, God would come down in the flesh to live the perfect life. Talking about taking a step down in comfort, taking a step down, perfect life that we couldn't to die the death that we deserve for our rebellion. And he did it on the cross. He did it to save his people, to save his creation. Jesus didn't choose the 21st century, he chose the first. And I think about him and his followers not having AC. I think about him and his followers sleeping on the ground. I think about him and his followers walking miles and miles a day. You know, my feet hurt after like 12 or 13 or 15,000 miles and they'd regularly clock 50 or 60. They knew what it really was to hunger or thirst. And if they heard any of us using the word hangry, they'd probably just shake our heads in judgment. And then you get to the book of Acts and you see the followers of Jesus getting imprisoned. Talk about being uncomfortable. And their mindset isn't, how do I get out to make my life easier, but who does God have me here with to share the gospel with? In one instance, Paul refuses to leave the prison. He refuses to escape and ends up leading a, a prison guard to Jesus. When we look at the early church, we don't see a people driven by mission, I'm sorry, by comfort, but by mission. Perhaps you were born or brought to where you are for such a time as this. God had Esther for such a time, a mission for his people, 
for his kingdom. What a different way of looking at the world, church. I know there are military people here who have asked God, why did you bring me to Connecticut? I grew up in Southern California, so come every February, all right? Someone in our house is asking that question. But to my military friends, for some I know the temptation is to watch the metaphorical clock count down as you look past and beyond where you're currently stationed, dreaming of where God will take you next, the next post, or maybe when you retire, or whatever the next chapter might be. But could it be that perhaps you are here for such a moment as this, that God's fingerprints are all over the journey that got you here. And perhaps we need to stop looking so far out and instead start looking around because our primary driver isn't comfort, it's mission. Teens, young people in the room, it is easy to obsess over whatever the next stage will be because high school gets you to college and college gets you to a career, but I hate to break it to you, 10 million years from now, no one will care about your GPA. Now, I'm not saying don't work hard, but don't let looking so far out keep you from looking around. Perhaps God's fingerprints are all over the journey that got you to where you are. And when I was in high school, my freshman year, some two of the most influential people in my entire life were a 16 and 17-year-old guys that decided that they were going to care about the people that God put around them, and I was one of them. Our primary driver is not grades or a job, but mission. Some of you are in positions of rank or authority over others, and so much of your time over the years, perhaps your energy has been spent on that next promotion, on the next raise, and there's nothing against hard work. But again, to those in positions of power, perhaps God's fingerprints are all over the journey that got you to where you are, and maybe you need to stop looking so far ahead and just start looking around. Our primary driver is not power or money, but mission. Bethany Jenkins from the Veritas Forum, she puts it like this. Wherever you are right now, you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You have certain gifts, abilities, talents, weaknesses, sufferings, and experience that enable you to help certain people, though it may cost you. No matter how you came to power in your company, church, or organization, it's never too late to hear and obey God's call. If you understand that you're his child, then your mission isn't for yourself, but for others. And who knows, perhaps you have come to your position for such a time as this. As we go off today, I would hope and challenge this week, today, to reflect, if you haven't in some time, on where, are God's, where, where would you see God's fingerprints in your life? Where, have, where can you sense his presence and his moving? And then to think as we move forward about where God has you, dreaming is great, vision is great, but some of us need to be forced from the future into the present and to look around and ask God, who do you have around me tomorrow? Perhaps you were brought here you were brought up, you were born for such a time as this. Don't take it for granted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the faithfulness of your daughter Esther. Lord, I pray that you would equip us 
to do these things, that you would provide clarity, that you would help remove the noise, that we would see you more clearly, Lord, and that with all the distractions and distortions in this world, God, that we would, that we would seek to live out the mission you have for us wherever we might be. Lord, whether that's on a submarine, in a stop and shop, side corner, in our homes with neighbors, in a school or a sports field. Lord, we ask you to equip us and give us the peace to go boldly as Esther did. We ask these things in Jesus' mighty name, amen.